The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 11, Chapters 2 through 4. After Quasimodo's heroic defense of Esmeralda, against those who would have been, at least nominally, her protectors, and then his victorious alliance with those who would be, for no reason at all, her murderers, he arrives at her cell to find it empty. I had to state the situation that way, in all its bizarre and contorted complexity, to highlight the fantastic nature of the scene Hugo has wrought. A hundred times he frantically searches Notre Dame from top to bottom, with the desperation of a wild beast that has lost its mate. Finally, sure that she is gone, he returns to her cell with his head hung low. As he approaches it, he allows himself to indulge the fantasy that she might still be there, sleeping, or saying her prayers. When he finds it still empty, he throws himself against the wall and falls fainting to the floor. When he comes to his senses, he flings himself on her bed and kisses the place she once lay. Then he rises and beats his head against the wall, as if to dash out his brains. Recalling Claude Frollo's midnight attempts upon the girl, he considers that it was he who had stolen her away. Quasimodo's love for the archdeacon is rooted so deeply in his heart that this thought, instead of arousing in him a thirst for blood and murder, only adds to his grief. At that moment, he sees the archdeacon walking toward the north tower, holding his head erect as if trying to see something over the roofs. Quasimodo follows him, the archdeacon and the gypsy still struggling for mastery of his heart. Seeing the priest lean against the balustrade, his eyes riveted upon the city, Quasimodo approaches stealthily behind him to see what he is watching so closely. The sun is rising, Paris is stirring, and the square is becoming filled with the activities of mourning. No signs of the night's tumult remain. The fire has gone out, the square has been cleared, and the bodies have been thrown into the Seine. Quasimodo burns to ask Claude Frollo what he has done with the gypsy, but the archdeacon's fixed stare gives him the appearance of a man who has left the world behind him, and instead Quasimodo follows the direction of his gaze. He sees that Claude Frollo is watching a man drag something white across the pavement of the Place de Greve, toward the gallows. The crowd momentarily obscures his view, and only when he begins to climb the ladder does Quasimodo see distinctly that he has a woman over his shoulder, dressed in white, with a rope around her neck. It is Esmeralda. All at once, the man pushes the ladder from him with his heel, and Quasimodo sees Esmeralda dangle from the end of the rope. At the most awful moment, an evil laugh breaks from the lips of Claude Frollo. Quasimodo shrinks back a few paces, and then rushes upon the priest and hurls him into the abyss over which he leans. What follows seems to me like a darkly and almost gleefully prolonged description of Claude Frollo's death. And all the while, Quasimodo, who needs only to reach out a hand to save him, doesn't even look at him. 
he looks at the gypsy and the gibbet. We experience, in every aspect and almost in real time, Claude Frollo's terrible and agonizing death. From his futile efforts to climb the gutter, his nails bleeding against the stone, to his feet scratching to find a foothold, his knees being flayed against the wall, to the pipe on which his cassock has caught, bending, slowly giving way beneath him, to his fall upon the roof of a house where he lands, breaking his bones, but does not yet die, to his final fall from the roof to the pavement where he lands and no longer moves. The tears Quasimodo had stifled for so long now flow like a river from his single eye. Raising his eye to the gypsy as she swings from the gibbet, and then down to Claude Frollo, stretched at the foot of the tower, he says with a sob that heaves his breast, Oh, all that I have ever loved. That evening, when officers come to remove the mangled body of Claude Frollo, Quasimodo has vanished from Notre Dame. Rumors were that he had destroyed Claude Frollo's body and carried off his soul. Accordingly, the priest was not buried in consecrated ground. We are then given a brief Where Are They Now, in which we are told that the king dies a year later. Gringoire, after dipping into a number of follies, returns to writing tragedies, and Phoebus comes to a tragic end of his own. He gets married. Esmeralda is buried at Montfaucon, where all the bodies of those unfortunates executed on the permanent gallows of Paris are discarded. When the vault was searched eighteen months later, two skeletons were found locked in close embrace. One was that of a woman, with fragments of a white gown and a necklace of green glass beads. The other was that of a man whose spine was curved and his head close between his shoulder blades. And, quote, when an attempt was made to loose him from the skeleton which he clasped, he crumbled into dust. Unquote. The next of my posts was a final thought on theme. With the last chapter behind us, I still contend that this novel does not have a theme in the purest and most meaningful sense of the word. In a truly theme-driven novel, there should be a central plot situation, from which all subplots are derived, and the resolution of its conflict should suggest a basic integrating idea. I challenge anyone to boil this one down to those essentials. A basic conflict, a resolution, and an abstract meaning behind it. And I don't accept that the theme is fate. In fact, the only way I can conceive of fate being the theme of any work would be for characters to battle against it, to strive to assert control over their destinies, and to have fate prevail in the end. That didn't happen here. When Hugo makes references to fate toward the end, calling the hangman and Esmeralda the spider and the fly, that connection seemed forced. I regard fate as a link between the events of the story as tenuous as, well, as the silks of a spider web. The only way for me to make this point more convincingly is to contrast this work with one clearly theme-driven. So stick around and read with me. There will be many.
The next of my posts concerned the question, Is Notre Dame melodrama? Robert Louis Stevenson accused Hugo of melodrama, and to the extent that the drama is disconnected from an integrating idea, he might be right. But I think of melodrama as drama that is just exaggerated in proportion, that uses blunt force on the emotions, and that resorts to conventional emotional triggers. A soap opera is a melodrama. In that sense, the shoe does not fit. On the contrary, Hugo's novels have an epic moral and emotional stature. The scenes are utterly inventive, and the real drama is in the details. Hugo doesn't exploit your feelings. He expands your capacity to feel. I knew that Esmeralda was going to be hanged. I was prepared for, maybe even inured to, this terrible and unjust death. But I wasn't prepared for this. Quote, Quasimodo, who had scarcely breathed for some moments past, saw the unfortunate girl dangling from the end of the rope, a dozen feet from the ground, the man crouching above her, pressing his feet against her shoulders to weigh her down. Unquote. I was not prepared for those feet and I felt the whole force of them pressing against my own heart. There are countless such moments in the book where Hugo includes a detail that makes a tragic scene excruciating. Let me know if there are any others that stand out in your mind. I called the next of my posts an adolescent Hugo. In his preface to Cromwell, Hugo says, quote, The human race as a whole has grown, has developed, has matured, like one of ourselves. It was once a child, it was once a man. We are now looking on at its impressive old age. Some of you have suggested that this novel features the human race in its adolescence, with all the reckless irrationality we typically associate with that age. I want to go out on a bit of a limb here and suggest that the novel itself is an expression of an adolescent Hugo. Now, I must be clear. I am not saying that the novel is adolescent. I believe it to be a work of timeless genius. What I am saying is that on a scale of Hugo, which is already a scale on which no mere mortal can hope to write, and by comparison with some of his other works— this one has some marks of adolescence. I have remarked repeatedly that I find the juxtaposition of humor and pathos in this novel a bit jarring. I feel like when he wrote this, Hugo possessed a burgeoning heroic soul, and that he was not ready to fully commit to it. In his later works, he does. I felt this especially when I arrived at the following line, quote, Phoebus de Chateaupers also came to a tragic end. He married. Unquote. This sarcastic line seems startlingly misplaced between the deaths of Esmeralda and Claude Frollo and the final, poignant scene of the skeleton crumbling into dust. I accept and love this novel on its own terms, but I prefer Hugo's later and more sober voice. The last of my posts was called Hugo's Affirmations of the Soul. 
In the introduction by Isabel Roche, she writes, quote, In spite of Hugo's lingering hesitance surrounding the genre, by which she means the novel, a 30-year period of novelistic silence separated the wildly successful Hunchback of Notre Dame from Les Miserables. It is without a doubt the form best suited to the scope and breadth of his all-encompassing vision, one that, to his own mind, was not at all fatalistic. On the contrary, Hugo preferred to view his novels as a series of affirmations of the soul. While contemporary readers and critics did not always agree, citing The Hunchback of Notre Dame as particularly ambiguous in its meaning, Hugo's profound and overwhelming belief in both individual and collective man's potential for progress is perhaps more evident to us today. Indeed, while the inadequacies of each past society that he examines and of the present in which he wrote pervade Hugo's fiction— his presentation of core, universal truths relative to the human condition show an unwavering faith in the future, in our future, to which his aspiration for the historical and social worlds are deferred. Unquote. This captures why I adore Hugo. Despite any ambiguities, contradictions, or flaws in his abstract ideas, he has a reverence for man, and his novels, all of them, fill you with the sense that life has grandeur and meaning and promise. He expands your capacity to feel and to live. We are now done with Notre Dame de Paris, and I'm a little sad about it, but I look forward to reading Aerosmith with you.